Have you ever heard the expression, your mind is playing tricks on you? You wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. As you stumble your way to the door, you catch a glimpse of a shadowy figure at the corner of your eye. Or maybe you go to the local grocery store and see a monkey man hanging around the train tracks behind the building. You quickly shake your head to refocus and suddenly the figure is no longer there. Did you imagine it? You couldn't have. It looked real. It felt real. These mind tricks are for the most part quick and painless. It happens for a second and the illusion goes away. Despite the trick only lasting a short period of time, the memory of it lasts much longer, maybe even forever. Think about how vivid that memory is and how much of an impact it had. Now, imagine if that mind trick just doesn't go away. What if that trick was actually reality to you, but unknown to the rest of the world? The human mind is a powerful thing. It can create works of art and inventions that can change the world. But it is also fragile. Just like you can catch a cold or break a leg, you can become mentally ill. It was something that was taboo to talk about years ago, but luckily the diagnosis and treatment of mental health issues have come a long way. Long gone are the days of getting a free fruit basket for admitting someone to a mental institution. Of all the mental health issues that exist, one of the strangest, excuse me, some weirdest of these conditions is the folia du, aka the madness of two. This condition is defined by an individual experienced delusional beliefs and hallucinations that are transferred from one person to another. That's right, you can pass the tricks in your mind onto somebody else. I know what you're thinking, this can't be real, right? Before you decide, have listened to a few stories about this phenomenon, guaranteed to be some weird. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I am your co-host, Barry. In this episode, we're going to tell you two stories where the people involved were said to have suffered from a really rare and really weird condition called folia du. We recently uh, discussed this in our Time Slips episode, the Mulberry Jordan incident, which they actually, one of the explanations of that was a folia du. And it also kind of really works well with our zombie episode where you got the madness of a zombie versus the madness of two. Yeah, it's weird enough when you see one person acting weird. But when you see two people kind of doing the same weirdness and have this shared psychosis, it's even weirder. Then you start to question your own vision of reality. Like, is it me who's nuts or what am I seeing here? And that's the thing, too. Like, What looks like weird to us, that's reality to them. So what are they actually seeing? Right. And, you know, we all have periods in our life when we're not in tip-top mental shape sometimes. But yeah, for sure. the ones like this, like folio do, is just like, I can't even figure out what's going on. Like, what has snapped in these people's heads? Yes, exactly. So, yeah, people who suffer from folio do, I think they feed off of each other and then they kind of get stuck in their own version of reality. Yeah, it's really weird, whatever the cause. But let's uh, talk about a few stories. Let's buckle up and get it on the go. And we're going to start with the story of June and Jennifer Gibbons, a.k.a. the Silent Twins. On April 11, 1963, a Welsh couple named Aubrey and Gloria Gibbons welcomed identical twin girls who they named June and Jennifer. So far, a lovely story. (laughs) But their shared delusion was equal parts loving and loathing at the same time. And it ended with them entering a hospital for the criminally insane only to be freed when one of them died. 
This is such a crazy story. They already had a daughter and a son. And then they had one more daughter after the twins were born. So in total, they had five kids in the Gibbons family. The parents, Aubrey and Gloria, they actually emigrated from Barbados to the UK. And Aubrey worked as a technician for the Royal Air Force, to make sure I don't say Air Farce, the Royal (laughs) Air Force. And Gloria, like a lot of women at the time, she was a homemaker. As babies, June and Jennifer were totally normal. But as they matured, they kind of got further and further away from that normal guidepost. Like, do you remember when your kid was a baby and like you were looking for the milestones? Oh, yeah. Roll at this time and sit at that time or whatever. So all that sort of progressed pretty normally for the twins. But it quickly went off the rails for them. So most kids start to say their first words when they're like 10 or 12 months old. Yep. Mama, dad, or whatever, stuff like that. And then by about two or three years old, you can't shut them up. You may not know what they're saying, but they're like, yeah, they're always talking, right? These twins, they did not. They just, no speech. They both had a speech impediment, actually, and that might have made it even more difficult to understand than even normal toddlers. And then soon, the girls kind of develop what's called a twin speak. This is another strange phenomenon, actually. You ever hear of someone saying like a twins have a secret language or anything like that? Yeah. Twins, I don't want to say creepy because I don't want to offend any of our listeners if they're twins, but twins got this unique connection that other people don't have. Well, how do you not think of The Shining? When I think of twins, I think The Shining. I think Degrassi, of course. Oh, right. Yeah. I think the Olsen twins. The Olsen twins. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw a picture of them with um, the caption was, the Olsen twins look like one of them knows when you're going to die and the other one knows how you're going to die. <laughs> They got such a creepy look about them. But twin speak is a real phenomenon. It's called cryptophagia. It actually has a name. Okay. It's from the Greek meaning secret language. And they say about 50% of twins develop this cryptophagia or this twin speak, but it usually lasts until about age of three. And then they start to become more mainstream with whatever language they speak. So like all kids, June and Jennifer, uh, they went to school, you know, when it was time for them to go. And the parents, they knew that they had like a special twin connection. And they also knew that they were shy and they had that speech impediment and all that stuff. But they didn't really have any reason to think that they wouldn't be okay in school. But unlike all the kids, they did not grow out of this twin speak. So they continued to not really speak English. They would just had this weird secret language. And when they went to school, instead of it getting better because they were around more children and more people in a different setting, it actually got worse. So they got less and less interactive with people as they went to school. Again, it could have been partly due to that speech impediment. Uh, Nobody wants to show their cards if they have what they think is like not normal. So that could have been part of it. But by the time they were 14 years old, they spoke to absolutely not one other human being, didn't try to communicate at all with anybody except for their younger sister. And that was only because she shared their bedroom with them. She was their lifeline to the rest of the family. So 14 years old, you're what, in grade nine? 14, I guess you would be in grade eight or nine. Yep. They got all the way to grade eight or nine without speaking a word? Yep. Wow. This was a different time. I mean... How did he assess their reading abilities? I don't know. Like, I thought of that as well. Maybe in the UK, they had the no child left behind rule long before yeah. we have it here. For everybody else, yeah. Yeah. They would not communicate with anybody. How did they get promoted? I have no idea. It must have been incredibly difficult for them to be in school if they didn't speak or communicate at all. Yeah. 
they were very, very ostracized for this. So not only were they kind of, they were weird because they didn't speak, unfortunately, as well, at the time, they were the only black family in yeah. probably Wales. <laughs> that certainly didn't help. I mean, let's be honest. That did not help them at all. I wasn't able to find out if the other children, because there was five kids in the family, if they felt the same sort of racism as the twins, but I'm sure it did not help them. They were they were different. On, they were twins. They didn't speak. And they were from the black family of the community. So they had a lot of things that uh, kids would pick on. And they were bullied relentlessly in school over this. It got so bad that they were actually excused five minutes early so they could not have to put up with the, the bullying. Yeah. So they got into this vicious cycle of not communicating, being bullied, turning further inward. It was like a, a rut that they were sort of in forever. But that wasn't the only weird thing about them. So they refused to communicate, but they also, their movements, they would mirror each other. So when they walked, they would walk in single file, like one after the other. In step, Jeez. super slow. Like mimes? <laughs> like they mime each other? Like, yes. How can they not have been picked on? Oh, they were weirdos. Yeah. This isn't just stories that people would talk about later, but the administration of the school said, these kids are weird. We got to study them. And they would yeah. secretly film them. So you could even Please. look... Yeah, you could look on YouTube now and see video of them like walking along, eyes cast down walking in a perfect step like they were in a time slip like almost in slow motion not being aware of what's going on around them just really fucking weird that's that's wild yes and when they ate they ate almost in unison so they would have like a bowl of gruel or whatever you get to eat in whales <laughs> in the 60s and they like very slowly bring the spoon up to their mouth together take a bite slowly they're almost like animatrons the unusual behavior, we'll say, they caught the attention of these school psychologists and they secretly videotaped them. If you look at them, you would think they were catatonic. That's okay. how strange it was. So you have these kids, they're teenagers, they don't speak, they move at the same time. What the fuck is going on with them? So to everybody involved, they were like, you know what? These kids really aren't getting that much out of school. <laughs> yeah. Finally, they realized. So they were actually sent to a school for special education. Okay. Uh, which was uh, probably a, a wise move. I was kind of surprised that they would have such a specialized school at that time, but but they did. And here they continued to be secretly videotaped so you can look at the weirdness of these twins. To me, when I watched the video, it almost looked like in The Matrix when Neo realized he was in The Matrix. Yeah. That's what they move like. Okay. At this point, if you're listening to the story, if you've hung out with me this far, you're probably thinking, were the girls developmentally challenged? Were they unable to form communication? And at this point, I would say, no, you're wrong. They didn't speak, but they were voracious writers. Okay. They each got a diary for Christmas one year, and they wrote volumes and volumes and volumes in these diaries. So between the diaries that they wrote and these secret videotapes, that's where you get the idea of what their childhood was like. Also, it was discovered that their secret language wasn't really a secret language at all. It was just English, but they would speak really, really quickly, like a bunch of Newfies. New Flanders. Yeah. And then they had some Bajan Creole in there as well. So Bajan Creole is a dialect that they speak in Barbados. Okay. But essentially, they got used to communicating in this way. That's just how they spoke. So they didn't know how to not speak that way. Yeah. 
Apparently, the twins both independently wrote letters to the administration of this special education school, and they said that they wanted to be separated. They didn't want to be in the same school together anymore. And the reason they said was because when we're together, they act stupid. That was the quote. They act stupid. That's what they said. And this was really the first indication that they were even aware about their codependence and their really odd, strange behavior. The school administration said, that is a fucking good idea. We got to try something with these kids, right? Yep. So they said, this is going to be a positive step. Let's let them decide who's going to stay at this school and who's going to go to another school. That was a bad idea because the girls went crazy. They started swearing, cursing, beating the shit out of each other, yelling that they were going to kill each other. They just went nuts. One of them said, I need you to go. And the other one's like, no, you're the one who has to go. And they couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. From catatonic to wild in like one second. So that was like, what fresh hell is this? That's what (laughs) they did. Eventually, they did get separated, and they went to two separate boarding schools. And instead of that helping them kind of develop their own language and their own skills and their own individuality, they both went completely catatonic. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't dress. They wouldn't go to the bathroom. They'd sit in their own piss and shit. They'd drool. (laughs) Like, they were just completely a non-person when they got separated. So it was almost like, to me... When they were together, they were like one very damaged person. And when they were apart, they were just broken pieces of a damaged person. When they were separated, were they writing books or writing their little journals? No, when they were separated, they wouldn't do anything at all. They'd have to be like, you know, brought to the bathroom. They had to be fed. Like eventually they said, we got to put them back together. This is worse than it was, right? But then at at the age of 16... I guess that's the legal age. They just left school without graduating, without, you know, anything. And that also made things worse because they turned further inward still. Mm -hmm. They spent all their time in their bedroom. They kicked the sister out, the only one that they spoke to, and wouldn't even speak to her anymore. And all they did was write. And then they would uh, leave the bedroom just to go collect their dole check. That was it. Their welfare. Before, at least they were visually involved in something but now it was just in the room their mother would bring their food up to them lay it outside the door they would you know go get it and eat it and put the trays back outside it was like crazy pants you qualify for welfare if you still live with your parents and you drop out of school and everything that's a good question i i don't know they were able to get it anyway they were wards of the state well not really wards of the state they were dependent upon the state okay yeah but in this self-imposed physical and mental prison now, yeah, they wrote in the diaries and they wrote a lot of fictional stories as well. So they weren't just writing accounts like, I want to be away from my sister because I'm stupid, but now I'm shitting on myself. So what am I going <laughs> to do? So they would write a lot of fictional stories as well. And they were kind of obsessed with being in the United States and living some kind of flashy life or whatever. So they both had this idea that they were going to become famous authors. They didn't graduate from high school, but this was what they were going to do. June actually had a book published. It was called The Pepsi Cola Addict. It's about a guy obsessed with Pepsi. Oh, sounds familiar. (laughs) It's about a podcast host from New York. That's right. No, it's a a guy obsessed with Pepsi, and he has an affair with his teacher. Then he goes to jail for a failed robbery because he's gazing at the Pepsi 
and he doesn't know how to Which... not look at the Pepsi, so he gets caught. <laughs> it's fucking weird, right? And then he goes to jail, and then a male guard tries to rape him in jail. That's what their book is about. Where they're getting this life experience, I don't know, or these ideas, or what's up with the Pepsi, but you can get a copy of that book if you look hard enough. Okay. June Gibbons, the Pepsi rapist. <laughs> the Pepsi Cola addict. Okay. It's not like Penguin House came after them or something like that. No. It was self-published. It self-published back then? I thought it was more of a, an Amazon thing. No, it's it was even back then where you would pay to print your own book. I think they call it vanity publishing or something like that. Or okay. you basically, you'd pay and say, print my book, and then you know you would get a percent of it back or whatever. Other stories included one where a particular kind of disco music causes people to stab each other to death. And there's another one that a doctor takes the heart out of the family dog to put into his son to save his life. But the dog's spirit lives on and the dog gets revenge on the doctor. This is the kind of crazy shit they're writing. Like it's kind of odd and violent. Yeah, it seems very strange. In their nonfiction writing, just their diary, their day-to-day, like today I wrote a book and I went and got my doll and I marched it on yeah. a single file, uh, all that. They also often write about how they want to murder each other. Okay. They're just sitting there and staring <laughs> at each other. Just do it. Have a little Darwin action. Survival of the fittest. <laughs> they do not have a healthy sibling relationship. They're not no, like they us not. at all. So we got a pretty good picture of what the fuck is going on with these crazy-ass bitches. And I hate to judge other parents because far be it from me to raise your child. Yeah. But if your kids are not leaving their room and they're collecting the doyle and they're writing about wanting to murder each other and you don't even see them and you put your food outside their door, what sort of intervention should the parents have done? They should have done more. I mean, like I say, well, so we're talking about the, the 70s here now. Okay, here we go with the math. So it's probably like mid-70s. 79. They'd be 16 and 79. Yeah. So I think... Some kind of uh, intervention and medical assessment should have been done at this point. Yeah, I mean, they did have psychologists and psychiatrists Mm -hmm. looking after them in school. But then they're like, ah, we're not getting anything out of this. So we're just going to go on to public dole. But it's really, really sad. There's a documentary about their life and their parents are interviewed. And they're just kind of like, well, like every single parent never thinks they're doing enough no matter what. Yeah, I mean... It must be hard on the parents who don't know what to do and they're yeah. still their kids and, and, you know, I guess you do ending for your kids and, mm-hmm. and you know, when their kids are writing books and shitting on themselves, it's kind of hard to. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have two ends yeah. of the spectrum here. They're both yeah. authors and also they shit on themselves. Yeah. So anyway, that's where they are in their late teens. It's kind of sad when I think about it from that perspective, though. Yeah. Like the what's the book parents. about? Oh, what's the book about? Oh, they wanted to kill each other and then they... <laughs> <laughs> Masturbate to Pepsi or something. I can't remember. By the time they're 18, they decide, all right, we got to make a change in our lives. Yeah, it's a good call. About time, boys. So they say, we got to make a change. Let's go out in the world and meet some boys. <laughs> okay. Pretty these guys. Oh, these guys were pieces of work. These guys should have been in jail. So okay. he- here's a couple of kids. They're brothers. They're Americans. Twins? Not twins. Okay. But they were equal shitheads. Okay. All right. So I do not remember how old the boys are, but they're also teenagers. I think their family is there because they're not diplomats, but they're somehow working in the UK for a short period of time. I can't remember okay. why, but they're Military in there. or something, maybe. Something like that. Yes. So they know about these American boys. And of course, they have this obsession with America as well. Yeah. 
right? Especially if they want to go to Malibu and all this stuff. So they're like, maybe we're going to hook up with these psychopaths. And maybe we'll go back to America with them. And these kids, these boys did absolutely nothing to enhance these girls' lives. They got them into drugs. They got them into alcohol. They got them into petty crimes. So not only are you weird, nonverbal, Pepsi rape books, but now you're, you know, roaming around high and tripping balls and like breaking into stores and stuff like that. They would treat the twins like dirt. So they'd have sex with them both. And then they would pit them against each other. At one point, June got so angry that Jennifer also slept with one of the boys that she brought her to this like creek and tried to drown her, like held her down under the water and tried to drown her. She was able to to get away. But to retaliate, Jennifer tried to strangle her with a radio cord. So how how did this de-escalate? It doesn't de-escalate. It doesn't. This is like the beginning of the story. So they're drowning each other, choking each other, having sex, doing drugs. And then this is the thing that gets them caught and gets them sent to the psychiatric hospital. Finally, they burn down the local tractor store. A tractor store? Yes. Our tractor factories. They burn it down to like watching shit burn because they're fucked up and they're arsonists. And then they go home and they write all about it in, in their diary. How wonderful it was to burn down the tractor shop. Anyway, so they get caught. Given their history, you know, everyone kind of knows their history. They get sentenced to Broadmoor Hospital. I don't know if you ever heard of this place before. But basically, it's a hospital, psychiatric hospital, for the criminally insane. It's been around since the 1800s. Back in the Victoria time, you could pay a penny to go look at the lunatics. Like, it's not a great place. At 19 years old... They enter Broadmoor Hospital, and it makes them among the youngest offenders ever to be sentenced to Broadmoor. Sounds like a, a good decision for society. Right. Their story gets the attention of a reporter named Marjorie Wallace, and she eventually starts to go visit June and Jennifer at Broadmoor regularly. Eventually, they start to talk to her. So after oh. like just sitting down, staring at the walls and burning shit down, they start to talk to this one reporter. Her interviews with them, plus the diaries and and public record stuff, this reporter, Marjorie Wallace, compiles that all together and write a book called The Silent Twins, which is where I get a lot of this uh, research from. Wallace says that during her interviews, she felt, and maybe hindsight is 20-20, maybe you have some cognitive dissonance here, I don't know, but she felt that June wanted to speak to her, but Jennifer was like subtly giving her like looks like no okay you know what i mean and june says in her diaries that she is both possessed and controlled by jennifer and jennifer's diaries show that she's getting progressively more paranoid that june is going to kill her they're really not getting a lot better (laughs) while they're in this hospital right when they turned 29 years old so after 10 years years. mm -hmm, they were going to be transferred from the high security prism to a medium security place in Wales. According to Wallace, sometime while they were at Broadmoor, the girls decided that one of them had to die so that the other one could have a normal life. That -hmm. was the only solution to their dilemma. On the morning of their transfer, she, Wallace, says that Jennifer declared to her she was going to be the one to die because they decided it would be her. Okay. That's a fucked up thing to say to someone. Yeah. How would you make that decision? Apparently, that's what she told her. While she was just 29 years old, she had no known physical conditions. Jennifer Gibbons passed away in transit from Broadmoor to the new medium security hospital. It was reported that she just kind of lay down for a nap and didn't wake up. Oh. 
They did an autopsy. The official cause of death was a swelling of the heart, but the particular condition that they named in the autopsy is almost never fatal, and even less so for somebody who's young and healthy. Almost immediately after Jennifer dies, June starts acting normal as shit. She's speaking freely to all and sundry. Wallace claims that she told that Jennifer's passing made her free. June is eventually released back into society, has no further issues mentally or legally, and she leads a completely normal life and prefers to leave her past behind her. Wow. On Jennifer's headstone, this is the last part of this story, is we once were two, we two made one, we know more two, through life be one. And that's the story of the silent twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons. They couldn't be together and they couldn't be apart. The only way that one of them would have been normal was if one of them died. And then one of them did under mysterious circumstances. So is June still alive? Yes. Yes, boy. She's alive. There's a documentary that you can watch. I believe it's from the BBC. I watched it on YouTube. And she's talking all about her experience, why they didn't speak to anybody else when they were kids. The whole thing about feeling possessed and... So what's her explanation? Like, what happened when Jennifer died? It was like a release or... Yes. She said when she died, it was almost like she became free. It's not a classic case of folia do. It's more of a shared delusion and just a yeah. crazy story about severe codependence between two people without good intentions and how it ended up for them. Crazy, crazy story. Yeah. I have an equally crazy story. It's also about twins, twins from Sweden, named Ursula and Sabina Eriksson. They were born in November 3rd, 1967. And by all accounts, they had a very healthy and normal upbringing. They didn't walk in unison and, and talk to each other through <laughs> their brains and nothing like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Killed each other and shitting all over themselves. They didn't do any of these things. <laughs> but at some point, Ursula ended up living in the United States, where Sabina uh, moved to Ireland. She found a spouse, and they had two children together. Mm-hmm. Everything seems normal, but on May 16th, 2008, Ursula traveled to Ireland to visit her sister. But this trip was unplanned, and the reasons why it was it remains unclear. Ursula surprises Sabina, and she's like, what are you doing here? And you figured it's like a joint reunion? But no, the sister secretly leaves Sabina's house and travel to Liverpool, England. So they arrive in Liverpool at 8.30 a.m. on Saturday. As soon as they arrive, the first thing they do is they go to a police station and report concerns that Sabina's kids were in trouble. First question is, why did you go to a completely other country to report, right? Like, why didn't you go to the local Irish police? Yeah, exactly. Police officers, because this is a little weird. Why does women living in Ireland would travel to England to follow a report about their children's safety? But didn't really think too much of it. Basically said, you know, your kids are fine. Don't worry about it. So they did check in on the kids? They did, yeah. Okay. The, the report they got from the Dublin police was, yeah, there's no issue. They got into a fight, but the kids are fine. Okay. So, around 11.30 in the morning, the two sisters boarded a bus that was heading to London. Because reasons. Re- reasons. There's, there's no explanation to that. Okay. While on the bus, several passengers and the driver noticed some very strange behaviors from the women. They each had a backpack and they were guarding it with their life. So, they were sitting there and it was just like they had their arms wrapped around it. Mm. Uh, they didn't store it. They didn't put them up above like you would in a bus. They just had it sitting on their lap. They started complaining about not feeling well. So, the bus driver made an unscheduled stop at a service station. Have you ever traveled anywhere by bus? Never. How weird do you have to be for the other bus people to yes, say, right. hey, you're acting kind of weird? Yeah. Uh, they get out, walk around, get some air, do what you kind of do when you when you stop. 
So they decide they want to re-enter the bus. The driver wants to search the bags because they're hogging these bags, and he doesn't know. Is it a bomb? Is it, you know, mm. what's the deal with these bags? How come they won't, uh, how come they're guarding them with their lives? Uh, women refused. So the driver said, okay, you're not getting back on this bus with those bags. You're not going to let me search them. So you can wait around for the next one. So the bus goes on, and driver was also concerned, so they called the police. The police show up. They question the sisters. They, they don't see any reason why there's any issue with these two, two women. They just leave. Do the police look in the bag? Whether they did or didn't, I don't, I don't know. But anyway. Like, I'm super curious what's in this bag. Oh, we, we do find out what's in the bag. Ooh, okay. But they, they figured they're harmless and they just leave. Mm-hmm. So once the police officers leave, the women figured they're going to continue this journey on foot. So they proceed to walk down the M6, which is a busy highway or motorway, if you will, in England. For our UK listeners, yeah, I'll know what we're talking about. It's your average busy highway. Yep, okay. These women are walking in the median, so in, in, in between the two the two lanes traffic going opposite directions. Which should be illegal, right? Like, you're not allowed to... Oh, yeah, for sure. 100% it's illegal. Out of the blue, one of them, they decided to just run into the oncoming traffic. Oh, yeah, like you do. Yeah, right. So Ursula gets hit by a vehicle. And all of this is caught on camera. There's several closed-circuit TVs for traffic reports and all that kind of stuff. You know, you see the traffic reports. This mm-hmm. is caught on TV. Mm-hmm. People driving on the highway witnessed this, and they call 999, which is 911 in Britain. And, you know, say, you know, there's two women walking in, in the middle of the road in this busy highway. And one of them got hit by a car. The police that happened to respond to this, and this is just pure coincidence, were actually filming a reality show called Motorway Cops. So two cops, their names are Tracy Cope and Paul Finlayson, uh, and they respond to the scene. So these officers were expecting to come up to a fatality or something. He said they heard that someone got hit on, on a highway. Like, this is a major highway, and a pedestrian got hit. What's a pedestrian doing there, first of all? Figuring they'd come up to a fatality. But no, the cops show up, and the women are just standing on the side of the road, and, and Ursula only has superficial wounds. These next set of events were all filmed by this reality show, and if you look online, you can find it. The cops start questioning two sisters, and they're talking to a highway worker regarding the incident. And all of a sudden, Ursula just takes off and starts trying to cross the road again. Where's she going? We don't know. She's just running. Okay. So one of the cops almost try and stop her. So like the way it is, they grab her arm, but she has like a coat, and she kind of spins out of the coat, and the guy just has her holding her by the coat. Yeah. And she takes off. So she's hit by a transport truck and run over multiple times, oh. and her legs are a mangled mess. Oh, it's my like God. She's like stuck to the road. And like I said, you can see the uh, trigger warning. If you decide to take out this footage, it's just trigger warning. It is pretty graphic. Yeah. Next thing you know, the cops are like, holy shit. One of them begins to stop traffic and treat Ursula. The other one, Sabina, she makes a run for it, attempts to cross the road, and she's hit by a vehicle, goes over the hood and smashes the windshield, and the roof just bends in the middle. So the cops are like, holy shit, this got ran into after both got hit. One of the cops gets on the radios and requests ambulance additional police for possible fatalities. Yeah, right? She like Iron Man's that car. Yeah. So Paul goes to check on Ursula, the one that got run over by the truck. Yeah. He's fully expecting this is a fatality. There's no way that any human could last what he saw this person go through. But she's conscious. Her legs have sustained massive injuries. So you can see it, her legs are just crumpled up, but she's like kind of on her side. She's hissing, screaming, and spitting at him. Hissing? Calls him cop a bitch ass. A bitch ass? <laughs> yeah, you bitch ass. <laughs> okay. And she also says, I recognize you. I know you're not real. Whoa. Yeah, but he's like, come on, calm down. You're in a, you're in a major, you're just in a major accident. Calm down. We're going to get you help and all this kind of stuff. They I the blanket recognize over and you. I know you're not real. Yeah. Oh, that's messed up. Is she in an altered state? Like, what the? F- we don't know. Wow. Is, is this fucked up? Yeah. So Tracy, the other cop, goes to see Sabina. Yeah. She was unconscious for about 15 minutes, but still alive. You know, breathing, vitals are good. And again, she just got hit on the highway, you know, traffic on highway speeds. Smashed through the windshield and all that. 
She comes to, gets up and starts walking and wondering where her sister is. She's screaming to Ursula that they're going to steal her organs. Oh, who are? I guess the cops or whoever. Someone's going to steal her organs. And that's what she said. So Tracy's telling her, stay put. You've been in an accident. You need to wait for medical attention. But she's up here walking around. They just have to get hit by a car. Oh, my God. And she goes to attempt to cross the road to go into oncoming traffic again on the other side. When do they stop traffic from coming? <laughs> in well, this... see, they're on one side of the highway, right? The traffic's all going east, say. Yeah. So when she comes through, she runs, jumps the median and starts going to the westbound traffic. Oh, my God. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? So uh, Tracy grabs her to try and stop her. And Sabina just punches her right in the face and drops her. <laughs> just after just after getting hit by a car. It just drops her, right? It's like they're on bath salts or something like that. Like some of those kind of drugs that make you. Yeah, it makes you like super hyper and super human strength type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Paul, the other cop who was dealing with Earthler, he's like, she's not going anywhere. <laughs> she's crumpled. She's part of the road now. And so she runs to Sabine and tries to. <laughs> she tries to calm her down. I, I know he didn't say that, but I'm yeah. glad you said that. <laughs> That's right. So uh, he, uh, he tries to calm her down. So Paul runs to Sabrina to try to calm her down. Tracy gets to her, and a bunch of innocent bystanders who happen to be motorists, they just pulled over, and they start helping her. It takes six of them to get off the road and get her back to the other side where the ambulance is. Because she's fighting them, or? She's fighting him. One got her arm, one got an arm, one got her leg, one got their leg, and they're just carrying her through. And she's, like, screaming, help, 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 to the top of her lungs. So they finally get her to the ambulance, and they sedate her. Yeah, okay, good. So both sisters are taken to the hospital. Ursula is obviously going to be there for a while because she has a pretty severe, you know, leg injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was taken by air while Sabrina was taken by ambulance. So to get to the hospital, all of a sudden Sabrina is acting like a completely different person. Very calm, joking around, even flirting with the cops while she's there. Uh, okay. Check for injuries. Nothing serious for her. It's why getting hit by a car and everything. Toxicology reported today because I guess first thing, they must be high on something, right? That's right. Yes. No signs of drugs, alcohol, and Ursula's system. But Sabrina, uh, Sabrina, sorry, wasn't even tested because I guess she was acting so calm and normal. There was no indication that she was on anything. Mm. So the bags that they were guarding was checked. Yeah. They had one passport in them and several cell phones. So different burners, I guess. That's all was in it. Are they spies? We don't know. Don't know. Oh, my God. So during questioning, Sabina never gave any reason why they were in England, nor should they ask about Ursula's condition or whereabouts. Never, never mentioned her sister. Never said, like, why are you here? No comment. That was the kind of thing she was saying. Like, a half hour earlier, she was running out in traffic looking for her. And now she's like, yeah, she's probably fine somewhere. Or maybe she doesn't exist. I don't know. Didn't even mention her. Wow. So she was charged for trespassing on a motorway and sentenced to serve one day in custody. One day? Listen, man, if you are driving down the Trans-Canada between Clarenville and St. John's, and you saw some crazy bitch running out into the street, and you hit her, that would traumatize you. I would be mad. Punching the cop might get you a couple of like, week in the old lockup. Right, exactly. Like, I don't know about that. Those poor people that hit them. Yeah, that's right. They must have been beside themselves. And it's like, there's nothing they could have done because no. they ran right into it. That's right. And Carson, you're never expecting to see a human being run on the M, what is it called? M- M6. M6. So how can the story get any weirder? Well, let's just keep going here. Okay. On May 19th, 2008... Sabina was released. She wasn't given a full psychiatric evaluation, but several experts did look her over and she didn't exhibit any signs of mental or psychological illness. Okay. So she's released, but you got nowhere to go. I guess she's in this weird town. The town is called Stroke of Tent, which I thought was an awesome name for a town. <laughs> so she's walking around and she got like a bag, a plastic bag full of all her shit that the cops gave her, you know, with her name written on it. She's walking around trying to figure out what to do. 
Yeah. So around 7 p.m., she comes in contact with two men, Glenn Hollingshead and Peter Malloy. So they're out walking Glenn's dock. So Sabina's there, sees these two gentlemen, and she goes, do you mind if I pet your dog? So he comes over, pets the dog, and he strikes up a conversation. She asks if she can point her into the right direction of a hotel or a bed and breakfast or somewhere she can stay for the night. Glenn takes pity on the woman. He hears the story about her sister missing, and he doesn't know, know that they're running around trying to dodge traffic. I mean, they're not even trying to dodge it, trying to hit traffic. Yeah. So he offers his help in the search for her sister, and he can she can stay with him while, while she's there. So they're back at Glenn's place having a few drinks. And the men says Sabina starts exhibiting some odd behavior. Okay. So she offers some cigarettes and, you know, they, go, they take a cigarette, puts them in their mouth and they're about to light them up. She takes it away and says, no, no, that one's poison. You can't smoke that. That Ooh. one's probably poison. All right. Now you ask her politely to leave. <laughs> and she's constantly looking at the window. So Glenn deduces from this that she's probably hiding from an abusive relationship and ran away. Afraid his buddy's looking for him to get her, right? Which kind of makes, you know, a bit of sense. Okay, so this guy is probably, again, not expecting a crazy person just to be wandering yep. the streets. A more likely explanation would be he's helping out someone who's clearly distressed. Exactly. Yeah, okay. That's what it looks like. So they go to sleep for the night. You know, you know, it's pretty uneventful. Nothing happens or anything like that. Mm-hmm. The next day, Glenn starts calling local hospitals looking for Ursula. Mm-hmm. He also asks his brother if he can give him a hand, which he does. And around 7.40 at night... He decides to go to a neighbor and ask him to borrow some tea bags. So his neighbor's out there washing the car. He says, yeah, yeah, sure. No, no problem. I, I'm just finished washing my car. As soon as I've done this, I'll run over a couple tea bags for you. So he's like, best guy. He goes back into the house, comes back out a minute later, looks at his neighbor and says, she stabbed me. And he's there, a big bloody mess. He collapses and quickly dies from his injuries. Whoa. <laughs> so from being nice and helping me out and all this kind of stuff and stabs him, just kills the guy. So shortly afterwards, Sabina leaves Glenn's house and she has a hammer in her hand. And this is caught on security, on like a neighbor's security camera. So you clearly see her like jumping at the back door, running with a hammer in her hand. Oh, wow. I think this is creepier because she seemed to be like getting normal. And then she's like, yeah. I'm going to have to stab this teabag guy and also steal a hammer, run out the back door. <laughs> so the neighbor who was washing the car off, she calls 999 because, you know, his neighbor's bleeding out there. Right. So meanwhile, Sabina's walking down the road with a hammer. Motor strolls by and he sees this woman, which is Sabrina, walking down the road and she's smacking herself in the head with a hammer. Oh! <laughs> just just plowing, yeah. Okay. He stops to investigate. What are you doing, missus? <laughs> yeah, tries to stop her from doing it. Yeah. So in her pocket, she has a roof tile. So she holds it and whacks him over the head with it. How big is her pocket? Yeah, I'm not sure what, like, how big the roof tile was. But anyway, she ends up whacking him in over the head with a tile. She flees the scene, and the authorities that were responding to the 999 call see this, and they start pursuing her. So she's running away from these authorities. She comes up to a 12-meter bridge, which you know is like on top of like a, a road underneath. Mm-hmm. It's an overpass to the A50, which is, which is another highway in, in the area. Mm-hmm. She jumps off, lands, breaks both her ankles, and fractures her skull. There's so much in this story. <laughs> it's crazy. Was her skull fractured because she was whacking herself with a hammer or because she jumped off a bridge? Probably a bit of both, I guess. <laughs> okay. So she's taken to the hospital and she ends up getting arrested. So on September 11th, 2008, she's released, taken into custody, and charged with murder. Ursula was also released in September. Okay. I remember our friend Ursula. She's sent back to Sweden and then back to the United States. That's, that's the last we hear of Ursula, honestly. The trial was supposed to take place in February 2009, but it was rescheduled in September because the courts were having difficulties obtaining medical records from Sweden. Sabina ended up pleading guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter with diminished responsibility, which basically means that the defendant's mental capacity was incapacitated at the time. Yeah, you don't know the difference between right and wrong. Exactly, basically is what you're saying. 
So both the prosecution and the defense agree to this. During the investigation, trial, and incarceration, Sabina never mentioned her sister once, never explained her actions about why she was in England, what happened on the M6, what happened with Glenn. Anytime they ask her any questions, her response, no comment. What the hell? Yeah, it's really, really, really strange. Like you said, some government spy and they weren't allowed to say anything. Who knows? No history of mental illness with her or Ursula. Well, now there is. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, the defense claims that Sabina was a secondary sufferer of a folia due and thought Ursula was a primary one, came over to visit her, passed it over to her through their twin magic, and started this whole series of events. Still, though, no explanation was going to be logical, but they didn't try to give any explanation. It was just like, don't know, I just decided to run in traffic and whack someone with a <laughs> roof tile. Wherever she got the roof tile, where the hell did she even get that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't say, but it's pretty strange. You know, they're going to steal my organs and I got a bunch of cell phones. Like, but yeah. just that's it. There's no comment. I just did all those things. Yeah. The only explanation they ever, she ever did say was that she heard voices in her head and could not interpret what they meant. Okay. I really don't think that's what they meant. No, I'm pretty sure they weren't saying that. They were probably saying something else. Did they say, oh, yeah, just run into cars and jump off bridges and stab people. That's what we want you to do. Anyway, she was sentenced to five years in prison. So the justice who handed out this sentence had this to say. I understand this sentence will seem entirely inadequate to the relatives of the deceased. However, I have sentenced on the basis that the reason for the killing was mental illness and therefore the culpability of the defendant was low and the sentence I have passed is designed to protect the public. Sabrina was suffering from delusions which she believed to be true and dictated her behavior. It is not one of those cases where the defendant could have done something to avoid the onset. Family and friends of the deceased did not like the sentence and basically said, well, it's not her fault. Like, you know, she couldn't help what she did. How could he let this person out of prison doing something like this and conclude that it'll never happen again? There's no way you can, especially because it seemed to come out of nowhere. She sort of started to act semi-normal and then went completely crazy again. There's yeah. no trigger. It's just stuff happens and all of a sudden you're getting hit with a roof tile. So what actually happened, we don't really know. And One of the elder brothers of the sisters said he thinks they're maniacs out to get the sisters. What? Oh, he's in on the crazy too. That's <laughs> right. Okay. And, you know, with names like Ursula and Sabina, you know, they could be witches, right? They're good witches' <laughs> names. But no, this is a crazy, crazy story. How these people who are perfectly normal just went crazy one day and started running traffic and, and ended up in murder. It seemed like in a very short period of time, just a reality snap happened. And there's no rhyme or reason. I, I, they just fed off each other's bad ideas, it seems. Yeah, it certainly seems like someone was chasing them, that, or someone was after, or that was the assumption. Like, uh, or they or, thought somebody was. They, that's what they thought. Like Ursula had some kind of thing that someone's getting them, or, or whatever. Went over to her sister. Sister bought in on her. The folia dude just got passed to her. Yeah, they ran away. Checked on the kids. Talked about stealing organs and help, and I know you're not real and all this kind of stuff. The murder ones, the really strange part, because you know, buddy was just helping her, and all of a sudden he went from, "I'll go and get us a cup of tea." To yeah, that's it. She stabbed me. That is a messed up story. So there you have it. The madness of two. We pretty well discussed it all pretty good and let our opinions out. Do you have any opinions on it? I can't. (laughs) I can't. My head hurts from it all. It's a wild story. You never never know what someone is really thinking, you know? I said earlier, I said I don't think twins are creepy, but these two sets of twins certainly were. These two sets are certainly got some issues. So if any of our listeners have your own stories about Foley and Dew, it's pretty rare. But uh, there are other stories. And if you have any that you'd like to share, you can reach us by email at somewheredpodcast at gmail.com. Or on Twitter at somewheredpod. 
or at our website, someweirdpodcast.com. Don't forget to share, like, review so our show can grow, and be sure to subscribe wherever your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In our next episode, we're going to the movies, where we'll look at the bizarre true story that inspired the horror movie classic, The Exorcist. As for Foley Ado, it's some weird by... Some weird. What's a girl monk? A sister? Uh, a monkette? I don't know. <laughs> a monkey? A <laughs> monkey. <laughs> a Yardville monkey man? I have a feeling that'll be one of our creepiest episodes. No. I have a feeling that... Th- <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling... Tonight's gonna be a good night. Gonna be a fucked up night. Get your hammer and your shingles. (laughs)